because we always run out of time in these events. So I'll begin answering the questions now, even though not everybody is here. Uh, there's a first question. Can you explain the term Kanti Paramang Tapotitika? Which uh, usually they translate as patient endurance is the supreme destroyer of defilements. Kanti means patience, endurance. Tapo means destroyer is one way. Another way is to incinerate, to burn up. So it burns up defilements. Defilements are kilesa. So you might say negative mental qualities which affect the mind. When the conditions are right, kilesas arise. If we haven't got enough mindfulness and wisdom to recognize kilesa, then we tend to follow kilesa and attach to kilesa. And this is what brings us suffering. So, say for instance, when you go into the kitchen and there's lots of food, nice food, that's a condition your eyes see the food, you smell the food, and maybe greed arises. Oh, I like this, I like that. Desire for nice taste, nice food comes up. That's kilesa, any kind of mental desire. And the opposite might be just to reflect, well, I need food to eat, and there's food available, so I'll just take enough that for my well-being for today, for this meal, enough to give me energy to practice for the rest of the day. If one reflects wisely, one can counter kilesa, and that kilesa of, say, greed, greedy desire for food might subside. Or you might reflect like that and still you have all kinds of greed come up, desire, or see something you really like, or really want that, maybe you want to take more than your fair share, put, or go back for seconds, or just think a lot about, get very excited about a certain kind of food. Even though you're reflecting this food is just medicine, energy for the body to keep it going, still your mind gives in to that desire. And this is Kalesa might keep arising. So then what do you do? You have to practice patience, maybe. You have to be patient with your state of mind. The kalesa you're seeing arise, but maybe you don't have the mindfulness and wisdom yet to let it go. But you can at least be patient with it. So you might see your mind getting stirred up by the desire for that food. But you say, well, okay, my mind is desired, has desire, but at least I won't give in to that desire and go and pig myself and take lots of extra portions of that food. I'll just take an appropriate amount of that food. Or maybe even I won't take it, I'll completely skip it. 
and I'll just watch the desire in my mind come up. You might use patience like that. That's one example of patient endurance with your kalesa. If you are patient like that long enough, you practice patience and you keep practicing, maybe trying to establish mindfulness and wisdom, try to get some control of your state of mind and you're patient enough and you endure long enough or maybe after a while you'll be able to let go of that thought, that mood. Even if the conditions are still right, that nice bit of food is still there available for you, you might be able to let go of the desire. It doesn't bother you anymore. You might use patience that way just to help support your practice of bringing up mindfulness and recognizing kilesa and then letting go, abandoning kilesa from the mind. You might have to do that many times as well. Your kilesas come back over and over again. Another day, another situation and the same old kilesa might arise again. So what do you do? You have to practice patience and not give in or give up. Or it could be patience with another person. Say somebody you live with and you work with them or you live with them in your family and they have a habit of speech or behavior that angers you. Every time they speak in that way or they act in that way, you get an emotional feeling come up, a feeling of displeasure. You get physical tension and maybe then some mental proliferation, some thoughts arise, you get anger. Your mind complains, you start complaining in your mind about that person, what they do, what they say. You might even say or do something because your mind is complaining and angry. Well, then you say something, criticize them or scold them or nag them, whatever, based on that angry mood, that kilesa. So how can you use patience there? Well, you might have enough awareness to see your angry mood but you can't abandon it yet you can't let go of it but you can be patient with it so you're patient with your own mood you don't give in to it and do anything or say anything with anger you just have enough patience that you'll just be willing to bear with your mood and then you're also patient with the object of your anger so it might be another person so it could be your partner or your brother or sister or your child or your work colleague, your relative and you're willing to be patient with them meaning you're accepting them the way they are and you're not giving in to your anger and doing something to harm them. That might be another example of patience. Or patience in doing any kind of good for ourselves, for other people, requires patience, doesn't it? You, to meditate for an hour, say, you want to sit for an hour without getting up and going away, well, you have to practice patience. So you use patience at every level of the practice, whether on the level of generosity, learning to be, uh, develop kindness, generosity towards others, when you perhaps would rather be stingy or selfish. 
You need patience when you practice sila, virtue, so restraining your speech, your actions, so that they don't harm others. And then you need patience in the practice of meditation, bhavana, developing the calm through working with a meditation object like the breath, developing insight. You need to train your mind to contemplate Dhamma. That means you have to be willing to keep bringing your mind back to the thing you're contemplating, directing your attention, observing, looking, investigating, which, is, which can be tiring, can be repetitive, so it needs patience, needs endurance. We need patience during the course of our practice because we also experience painful feelings maybe. We feel tiredness, sometimes physical pain from just the body. You sit in a meditation, you get aches and pains. You feel physically tired and so on. You know, all the, the good we do in our life, we're coming up against obstacles. Our own physical body, uh, relationships with other people, the conditions of the world we live in. You know, today you might say you have to be patient with the weather. It's a bit cold, especially in the morning. If you lose your patience, meaning you don't have that quality anymore, well, you go to impatience then. It means you give in to your desires and you might end up uh, doing something you regret or just giving up on doing something good. You just give up because you become too impatient. So with meditation, you might literally just get up and walk away and say, oh, I can't meditate anymore. It's too cold or too noisy or I've got too much pain in my legs or something. You give in to your desire and you give up on that good that you were doing. Or if, you're, if, it, if it's in the food hall and you see all the food you like and you give up on your desire, you just go and eat <laughs> exactly what you want, as much as you want. You maybe make a pig of yourself and everyone else looks at you strangely while you're stuffing your face full of cakes or something because <laughs> you've lost your patience. Uh, or if it's with another person where you lose your patience, where you just end up shouting at them or saying something unkind to them because you've lost your patience. So patience, you're using it at every stage in your life, in, in your Dhamma practice. And we have a lot of patience. As human beings, you know, we have lots of endurance and patience, but often it's not always directed in the right place. You know, sometimes we can be very patient doing something quite unwholesome or unskillful. <laughs> Like they say, you know, a thief who's going to crack a safe because he knows there's lots of money in that safe will be very patient trying to work out the combination and open the safe. But the intention behind the act is very uh, unwholesome. He just wants to steal some money from somebody. But might be very patient in the act. So true patience, kanti as a barami, is always directed towards doing good. It's directed towards cultivating the path and developing more dana, more sila and more bhavana. So it's not 
patience without any direction, it's directing the mind towards Dhamma and fulfilling one's aspiration, say, to practice Dhamma. So a very close quality to patience, Kanti, is satta, or faith. So if you want to practice meditation, you first of all, you have to have some faith, and that will help to motivate you. When you have motivation, you're willing to put up with difficulty. So you're willing to sit or walk meditation, you're willing to let go of other desires, distractions that you would normally follow. You set them aside to do your meditation perhaps. The patience helps you to fulfill your practice and to keep going. At one time Ajahn Chah said, if you just have that quality that you're willing to keep going, we'll gain something from your practice. If you don't stop, you must gain something. If you wonder why often we have the thought, oh, maybe I've been practicing meditation for many years and still don't seem to be very peaceful, I haven't gained much from it yet. Well, partly it's perhaps because we've run out of patience sometimes. And so we give up. If you don't give up, you just keep practicing, sooner or later you'll gain all kinds of benefits and your mind will in, improve and change in many, many ways. You just have to have that willingness not to give up, not to stop. It's just like anything in life. If you want to learn to run a marathon or learn a skill, learn to play a musical instrument or a sport or learn some kind of knowledge, you, know, you need patience in order to complete that. Being willing to be patient with the obstacles and the difficulties to endure through any discomfort as you're learning that skill or completing that task and then you'll gain what you want. So patience, the Buddha says, is the supreme destroyer of defilements, meaning that it's a quality that one uses from the day one in practice right through to the last day. Uh, it's a quality one cannot do without but it's a supremely beneficial quality. We can always do with more patience because what takes away our patience is kilesa and desire and so our mind is constantly tempted to drop away from having patience and endurance. We give in to our moods, we give in to our desires and then we often create more suffering or, or, or go further away from the practice because we're following uh, Kilesa. So you'll find in a monastery that one of the first qualities you develop or have to develop is patience, isn't it? You come here, there's not so much distraction or freedom, like say when you're at home, you can do anything you want when you want. <laughs> in a monastery, things go according to time. You have to sit when they sit, walk when they walk, eat when they eat. Uh, if you live in a monastery or stay in a monastery, even just for a day like today, you, know, you have to follow the routine. That requires patience. It's different than a situation where you're maybe more free to do exactly what you want. That's not always the best for us because sometimes that means we just follow our desires and that's not always so good. <laughs> But what patience 
gives us it gives us a kind of a, um, a foundation for which other wholesome spiritual qualities can grow so if you've got patience there and you're willing to be patient with different situations and conditions and willing to train yourself with patience then all these other qualities start to grow as well grow out of that so you know if you are patient with the practice of mindfulness directing your mindfulness to the breathing well sooner or later your mind will start to get better at it and you'll gain more um, concentration more of a sense of calm and peace and that's partly because of your patience and supporting your efforts uh, if you're patient with other people you tend to gain more kindness and compassion because you become more tolerant if you're not impatient with people you're willing to be, accept people and take the time to be with people uh, whether it's you know, people you know people you don't know after a while then your mind you know, it starts to grow other, these other qualities come out of that if every time you follow your, your reaction or your desire to other people you know, every time you, somebody says or does something you don't like you always walk away or leave that person or stop engaging with that person well you'll probably be very agitated always reacting, never very peaceful. Whereas if you have some patience, then maybe you can get to know somebody better, you find they maybe have all kinds of good qualities that you didn't realize, simply because you're patient enough to learn to live with them and find out more about them. And you ask, there was one time there's a couple came here husband and wife and they were celebrating 50 years of marriage and I said what quality you know, kept you together for 50 years and they both answered at the same time without looking at each other they both said patience <laughs> so you think about it what holds people together allows them to live together it's got to be qualities like patience meaning you're willing to accept each other for what you are whether you, you know both your strengths and weaknesses your good points your bad points patience with misunderstandings differences of opinion and so on if you're going to live with someone for a long long time you have to have a lot of patience If it's got to be other things that keep you together, say as a loving couple, probably you know, if it's just sense of sort of uh, feeling good all the time, we probably won't last very long together. We, <laughs> I want to just feel good. You've got to make me feel good every day, and then I'll stay with you. <laughs> Not going to be together very long. It's difficult to make other people feel good every day, all day, every day. You have to have other things. So patience is one of the things that carries you through when you don't feel good together. <laughs> Similarly with meditation. You know, if you expect your meditation to always bring you lots of bliss, feeling really good, really bright, lots of pleasant feelings, well hopefully it does sometimes, but it's unlikely that you'll get that every time you meditate because we all have a lot of karma that we've made in life we've got our attachments our 
cravings, we've got our body to deal with, our health, we've got the world around us, all kinds of obstacles. So if you expect every meditation to be perfectly peaceful and blissful, you'll probably get disappointed. Whereas if you have a more patient attitude that you're willing just to put the effort into your meditation, if it's peaceful, it is, if it's not, it's not, doesn't matter, I'll just keep practicing, you'll probably find your meditation goes better. Well, sometimes people go the other extreme and they get really impatient for results from their meditation, so they try to force it and they use willpower. And instead of just seeing where they need to develop more skills and often just basic mindfulness and be willing to put the effort in there, they just want to force their way all the way to Nibbana. They become very impatient for results, so they try and squash their mind down, hold it down to watch the breath maybe, to try and develop concentration, not to think about anything. And then after a while they become very stressed as they're trying to meditate like that. They become not very peaceful. Maybe even become so miserable they don't want to meditate anymore. Just because they've been trying to do it through willpower and forcing and actually because they're impatient for results. So patience, you know, it helps. it's a great balancing quality. It balances your effort, balances your expectations in life. So I could talk a lot more about patience, but just giving you some examples there. Ajahn, how can we use wisdom to develop samadhi? Well, wisdom, another quality that is a barami, kanti is a barami, patience, wisdom, panya is a barami. So it's a quality that you're using and developing all the time in your spiritual practice. Maybe one thing to remember is worldly wisdom, which often is, uh, we use phrases like common sense, and then there's worldly wisdom, which is like knowledge. We know a lot, know, we learn things, learn skills in the world, how to do things, how to live in this world, do jobs of work, uh, relate to society, run our lives in different ways. We, we develop a lot of worldly wisdom, but that's not yet necessarily going to help us to understand Dhamma and bring us to peace and truth. And that's the wisdom that we call samaditi, right view. And particularly it's directed to understanding what is the path that will lead us to the end of all suffering and stress. So spiritual wisdom, panya, it begins with just learning to train the mind to recognize and learn well what leads to suffering what leads to what in our daily life whether you're talking about meditation or you're just looking more broadly at your life how you lead your life what you do how you spend your time what you say what you do and so on it's learning to wisely reflect use your intelligence to wisely reflect on what you're doing to see where suffering might arise, where you're creating suffering out of your experience. And just reflect back on your state of mind to see, well, what 
lies behind your actions will often uh, determine how much happiness or suffering you have. So learning to reflect and look to see, you know, is your state of mind, the way you're thinking, your attitude, is it wholesome or unwholesome? We say kusala or akusala. Kusala means um, cleverness of mind. It's another word for wisdom, cleverness of mind, using your mind, uh, not clever in the sort of tricky sense, <laughs> to trick somebody, but clever in the sense of understanding what ways of thinking are beneficial for us and bring us more peace, more happiness, and what ways of thinking are not beneficial for us. You know, using your mind to see that and to um, start letting go, abandoning the, the negative or unwholesome, unskillful states of mind and ways of thinking. So that means you have to develop wisdom in a, in a way, as a bit like developing your mind like a mirror. So you have this ability to reflect back and see your own mind in different situations. So if you're meditating like this, it might be just to see your thoughts as they're arising and recognizing, are these thoughts skillful and useful or are they um, negative and causing, leading to suffering? And so you're using you know, both the teachings that you've heard, what you've heard, and then your own reflection from your own intelligence to look at your own state of mind and say, mm, here, here I am thinking this way, this is good, this is useful, or you might say, oh, this is causing me suffering here. If it's suffering, the Buddha said, any thoughts rooted in greed, anger, delusion are causing suffering, will end up, result in suffering. Thoughts that are free from greed, anger, delusion, thoughts rooted in wisdom, in compassion, with mindfulness and so on. These thoughts are leading us away from suffering. So this is the path. So sometimes we can stop and look and see how you know, our mind is getting agitated by the very thoughts that we're thinking. And we, this is wisdom, learning to develop the ability to reflect and look at something and see, oh, this is causing suffering. This is, this is um, something that I should change, I should do something about this. You know, if you're angry, say, you have angry thoughts coming up in your mind, you know, the, the wisdom, the wise reflection might be, oh, I'm suffering with this. Might be simply that reflection, this is suffering, I am suffering with this, I should have, this should be abandoned. And so often we believe our thoughts and our moods and we believe in all the logic of it and all the reasons. We say, well, I'm suffering because of this, I'm worried because of this, I'm angry because of this. And we just get caught up into the story and all the thoughts and on and on it goes. Without much wisdom arising really. Wisdom, true wisdom is where you're directing your mind to look at, is this causing suffering? Is this a source of suffering or not? So say you have some anger or some worry, you start looking at this and recognize in your mind, oh, this is suffering, I'm suffering here. This is not good. You also can see the nature of what we call unwholesome, unskillful states of mind, that in their nature they're not pretty to look at. The word the Buddha actually used, he said there's beautiful states of mind, states of mind, say, of kindness, wisdom, mindfulness, compassion, generosity, faith, 
when all these more wholesome states of mind arise, they're actually beautiful to look at. As a, it's hard to say, it's not a physical thing you can compare to, but mentally the mind becomes beautiful, meaning it becomes more peaceful, there's more happiness, it's more radiant. If you could see the mind when it had a wholesome thought, it would be radiant, nice to look at, like a candle or a bright light on a dark sky, in a dark sky. Whereas unwholesome thoughts are ugly. You know, anger is ugly. You know, jealousy is ugly. Greed is ugly as a thought. If you've never looked and you've never developed this sort of mirror that reflects that, well, you won't realize, will you? You won't see that your own anger or your own greed, your own delusions and misunderstandings are ugly. They're not, not pleasing to the eye, say the spiritual eye. They're dark. And you know, they create dark karma. You know, all the things we do in life based on thoughts of greed, anger, delusion do not lead to happiness. They lead to more stress, more suffering for ourselves and others. This is something you can only see with wisdom. Isn't it? I mean, your wisdom looks back at your own mind and says, oh, this is something that is not good for me, for others. You know, if you can see you're in an angry mood or you're depressed or you're sad or you're... You have a lot of greed, making you act in selfish ways, ways that you take advantage of others and so on. You can look and say, oh, this is, this is ugly and it's creating suffering. And you look at the results of what you do and what you say based on those thoughts. You can also see the results are not good. So much of practice is like this in the beginning. You're learning to recognize between what is wholesome and unwholesome. And the wholesome is to be developed, brought up and developed, and the unwholesome is to be abandoned. And sometimes you just have to be very clear with yourself. You like your like parents with their kids. <laughs> we see parents with their kids have to be pulling them around, looking after them, making sure they don't get into trouble. Well you have to be like that with your own mind and say, Oh, if you keep thinking like this, you know, talking to yourself. If you keep thinking like this, you're going to keep suffering. You might have that conversation with yourself as a way to get yourself very clear, this is suffering. So it could be greed, or anger directed to another person. It could be towards yourself. It could be based around situations, about the things of this world. What also helps you to break through the sort of delusions that lead to our greed and anger is this reflection on Anicca Dukkha Anatta we're talking about. And in, t in terms of wisdom developing samadhi, you can use this, say if your mind is very, very unpeaceful, stressed, thinking a lot, and you just can't settle down on the breath, we'll start to look at the nature of those thoughts and that, that state of the disturbed state of mind that you're experiencing. And you ask yourself questions about it. Say, is this mind uh, peaceful or not? Is it, are these thoughts permanent or not? You know, every thought that keeps popping up into your mind, just ask yourself a question. You know, how long does this thought last? You know, every thought, is a, usually it's a verbalization. Sometimes it's just emotion, it's just feeling. But if you have verbal thoughts, thinking a thought or you can watch that thought arise pass away it has a beginning has a middle and then it has an end doesn't it you have one thought and then you have another thought and then another thought <laughs> and on and on and on it goes
But when you're practicing mindfulness and developing wisdom, meaning the ability to look back at your own mind, you're seeing that. You're breaking up your thoughts maybe into sentences or phrases. And then you say, oh, that thought, and then another thought, and then another thought. If you keep looking like that, after a while, those thoughts become less uh, powerful in your mind. You're seeing more more of them as just, they're just thoughts or moods or objects that arise and pass away and the sense of believing and identifying with each thought each mood is weakened the more you do that so the more you establish mindfulness and start reflecting on your state of mind the more you can see oh this this is undermining attachment sometimes you're you're reflecting on the way thoughts and moods are arising dependent on certain conditions so you see how you have a pain in your leg when you're meditating and you have a thought about it my leg is hurting I don't like this pain I wish I didn't have a pain how long will this pain last and on and on it goes maybe you say oh I hate meditating because I always get a pain and on and on it goes and you might end up going round and round in circles But if you stop and establish mindfulness and reflect on that, you can say, oh, well, there's a pain. Then there's my thought reacting to, there's a reaction to it and a thought comes up, a mood comes up. I don't like this pain. (laughs) And then you grab onto that thought and that mood maybe. Maybe you forget the pain altogether and you're just caught into almost like a dream state, just thinking about that pain and what you think about it and what you would like to do because this pain is so bad I would rather go somewhere else maybe I'd like to travel to another country and so for 20 minutes you think about travelling to another country could be anything (laughs) but your mind goes into almost like a dream state away from reality the original cause of that thought process was just some pain but then you go into a kind of story and the mind just goes on and on and on and on. And after about 20 minutes you realize you've completely forgotten all about the original pain that started all those thoughts. You've just gone on thinking one thing after another. But when you start to establish mindfulness and look back at that, you say, oh, this is all impermanent. Just one concept, one idea following another. One image, if it's a visual thing, if it's a verbal thing, one thought, one word after another. You can start to intercept, break up those thoughts um, and start to see, oh, they're just impermanent. They're just conditions of mind that arise, pass away, arise, pass away. They always use the same simile like waves breaking on the shore. There's not much substance to them. They come up and they break on the shore and they fade away. When you can see that, your mind will almost certainly become much, much more peaceful and your mindfulness much stronger than before. Because you'll just see the nature of thoughts and moods and memories as, it, as they are. they see the truth about them. And they're just impermanent experiences arising, passing away, arising, passing away. And what arises instead is, is knowledge, wisdom. The wisdom seeing these things as impermanent, anicca. That's just an example how you can use use your own intelligence directed to thinking about Dhamma and contemplating your own experience. Gradually your mind starts to calm down, experience more samadhi.
The next question, Ajahn, could you tell us about how your, you practiced in your early days when living with Tanajana Nun and its benefits and the benefits of being with a good teacher? Oh, well, the Buddha, once Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha the importance of you know, discussing the importance of Kalyanamitta, noble friend or a good friend in, in the practice of Dhamma. And he said, oh, I think this is so important. It's at least half the practice is having good friends who can show you the way along the path, how to practice. And the Buddha said, no, that's wrong. It's the whole practice, 100%. So good teachers are invaluable. It's like having a road map when you, if you were to travel to Alice Springs from here without a road map, you might get very lost. You might even die on the way, run out of water or something. If you have a good road map, you'll get there. It might take a while, but you'll get there because you've got a good map. A teacher is like a good map. And they'll get you to where you want to go, which is Nibbana. So the best teachers are the teachers who've had insight into Nibbana. My first teachers, before I lived with Ajahn Anand, I actually lived um, at Wat Nana Chan, uh, the International Forest Monastery began by Ajahn Chah. So I actually spent quite a few years close by Ajahn Chah and actually living with him, uh, attending on him as a, like a nurse, an attendant monk because he's very ill. So I actually learned a lot from that period of time um, so even though Ajahn Chah was ill his mind was still very bright and powerful and living with him brought up a lot of faith for all the monks not just me, all the other monks as well brought up a lot of faith when you have a lot of faith in the practice it brings you energy you want to try harder put forth effort brings you the patience to deal with the difficulties and in those days there were a lot of difficulties. And when I first went to the monasteries in northeast Thailand, they didn't have electricity and life was very simple then. The food was simple. The requisites that we used, the things we had to use, very, very simple. There wasn't much in the way of comfort. So you needed a lot of patience. You needed a lot of energy. But living with teachers like Ajahn Chah helps that to arise because they're very good examples. So when you have good teachers, uh, what we call, um, we can recollect our teacher and the qualities of that teacher. It's called Sanghanu Sati. So it's a way of calming your mind by reflecting on or remembering, recollecting the goodness of a teacher. And a good example, the way they've practiced, you can bring that into your heart and then that becomes an example and a motivation for your own practice. So Ajahn Chah, you know, we used to listen and read about his own life story and then you live with him, spend time with him. You can see what he's practiced, it's true. He's developed uh, the mindfulness and the insight that we were all trying to develop. So that makes you want to try harder. So you're willing to go against you know, your desires. You might, when you want to sleep, you might be willing to stay up a bit later and meditate or get up earlier in the morning or when you want to be greedy you might be strong enough to be restrained 
or when you want to get angry, you're strong enough to restrain your anger and be tolerant or kind. So all the kilesas that would normally come up, when you're with a teacher, you tend to become much more careful. You probably like all of you when you come here, you're more careful when you go home, you probably lose some of your mindfulness and you give in to your kilesas a little bit more easily. You know, we all have that problem. But when you're with a teacher, you tend to be more uh, skillful. And that's one of the values of a teacher. Uh, so that, whether it was with Ajahn Chah or later with Ajahn Anand, uh, I found that very beneficial. And all the other teachers, I've actually been very lucky to have many good teachers uh, for shorter or longer periods in my life as a monk. And that's why we often invite teachers to come here. So you can also experience and meet with some of these teachers and gain from their wisdom and from their example. Right, living with Ajahn Chah, one of the things the monks always said was that when you're around Ajahn Chah, sleep is not very pleasant. Basically, you don't like to sleep a lot when you're around a teacher like Ajahn Chah. So we used to attend to him all night sometimes. We'd do for weeks and weeks and weeks, just stay up with him all night because he needed attention because he was ill. He had to be turned. He would sleep, but he needed to be turned physically by the monks. He needed to have medicine given to him. He had to be bathed, have to look after his... You know, going to the toilet, things like that. So 24 hours a day, the monks would stay with him and you'd have a shift through the day and then a shift through the night. The night shift was from 7 in the evening till about 9 a.m. in the morning. It was quite a long shift. And you were allowed two hours sleep or rest in that, but usually didn't take that rest because, as I said, sleep wasn't very pleasant or very delicious around Ajahn Chah because if you did sneak away to lie down, you didn't feel very good. <laughs> you felt kind of, either you felt guilty or you just felt lazy or you felt like missing a good opportunity to do more meditation. So myself and many of the other younger monks, when we attended on Ajahn Chah, we wouldn't sleep, we'd just go all night. We might have sleepiness arise, and you feel a bit drowsy, but we didn't give up our effort. We tended to in your moments of free time when he didn't need your immediate attention, you might do sitting or walking meditation. And as I said, we'd do shifts for two weeks at a time or sometimes I'd do a month at a time. And so you might go for a month staying up every night meditating, day after day after day. And, every time, and because it's your teacher, you don't want to be lazy, you don't want to sneak away, you don't want to give up on what you've pledged yourself to do, which is attend to the teacher. So that means you're constantly drawing out more energy, more effort in your practice. Even if you feel tired or fed up or ill even sometimes, um, you carry on. So you gain patience and you gain energy and faith and then you get results from that. You know, often the monks would be very tired, but at the same time the mind would become very bright. You get a lot of um, good insights in your meditation. When you're with a teacher, often you, you try harder so you, your mind becomes more peaceful and your contemplation often goes a little bit deeper so you get more insights. 
So sometimes in those days, you just go like 24 hours without sleeping, just meditating in different postures, sometimes attending on him, sometimes sitting, sometimes walking. But 24 hours, after 24 hours, might then do another 24 hours without sleeping. Sooner or later you have to take a sleep. Obviously our bodies come to their limits. When you're young you can often do that. So if you go 24 hours or even 48 hours without sleeping and you're just practicing mindfulness, just thinking of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, just thinking of your meditation object, just contemplating an Ichidukkha, Anatta in your experience. Well, obviously after a while, your mind becomes very bright. You get a lot of pity and sukha, these qualities I was talking about earlier this morning. You know, if you do 10 minutes of meditation a day, well, that's good. You might feel a little bit more relaxed. If you do 24 hours meditation for a day and a night, well, you probably get a lot more, won't you? It tends to go like that. The more you put into your meditation, the more you get out. And the monk's life is suited for that. Monk or nun, you're, you're in a monastery. Your whole lifestyle is dedicated to meditation and the development of mindfulness. And you're supported by the other members of the Sangha. So particularly when you're a junior monk, you don't have too many responsibilities. You can do lots and lots and lots of meditation all day if you want, all night if you want. And so the result of that is, well, you gain a lot of strength of mind, a lot of insight. And you see all the rest of the things that people say are good in the world, you realize are not so good. (laughs) So then you don't have too many doubts about all these other things people say are so important. You realize the most important thing is your own mind and how peaceful or not peaceful it is. What we call merit. You know, we always use this word merit or bun, bunya. The most important thing is developing merit, wholesome states of mind. The more you do that, the more you have some real happiness and some real confidence in your practice. You know, all the other kinds of happiness we experience in the world, you know, they don't last very long, do they? You, the things we do for happiness, you know, all the pleasures of this world, they are pleasurable, but they don't last very long. They come and go up and down. Whereas the kind of happiness you gain from practicing Dhamma stays with you. It doesn't disappear. You might still have a little bit of up and downness in your experience, but generally your experience of this mind is becoming more and more peaceful through the development of insight and mindfulness. So practicing with these teachers, it's like that. You get a very good example and that helps draws your own effort out and you practice harder. If you're with teachers who you believe have let go of their own kilesa, their own anger, their own greed, their own uh, jealousy, their own delusions about things, then that, you, know, you want to experience what they've experienced. So you realize, oh, I have to practice harder. I want to keep, keep going. You know, we all want to be uh, happy, but you've got to create the causes for happiness to arise. 
It's like if you want to work, if you want to get rich, well, you have to work, don't you? You have to go out and work, earn your money. Your meditation and Dhamma practice is like that. If you want to be spiritually rich, meaning you're peaceful and happy, well, you have to do the work. <laughs> Which is what we're all doing here. And this is why you're doing something very good, very praiseworthy today. You're coming to listen to Dhamma, to practice meditation, to further your practice deepen your practice. With uh, Ajahn Chah, probably one of the enduring sort of images of Ajahn Chah, because I was with him for about seven or eight years, is um, the evenness of mind, even though he experienced a lot of physical suffering as his body was degenerating over those years but the evenness of mind meaning never displaying any kind of sense of personal suffering or attachment to his situation you know pain discomfort and so on never seemed to display that always seemed to have a very bright mind and several times he got very ill where he got very weak, probably had a lot of pain and occasionally had to go into the intensive care unit of the hospital. But until, obviously, eventually he did die, but until the point where he died, his mind always seemed to be slightly uh, separate from the whole experience of his body. You got the impression that the mind is just peaceful and pure and the body is just degenerating according to its nature. When we get old and we get sick, then that's what the body does. But there was a clear or very obvious sense of um, separation between mind and body. And you realize, oh, if you keep practicing, that's the kind of result you can expect from this practice. You're, you're improving the level of your mind. So even though your body is like doomed, <laughs> Unfortunately, we're, our bodies are all doomed. We're all going to get older. We're all going to get sick. We're all got to die. And we can't avoid that. It's a kind of hopeless case. But our mind doesn't have to be doomed either. Our mind can be rise above that through the practice. You know, if you understand the body is one thing and mind is another, then you can actually free it from dukkha, from suffering. And when you live with a teacher, they're constantly reminding you of that in different ways. You, know, through, you see them through different situations where they're, they're, um, they rise above dukkha and they don't sh show that their mind is experiencing dukkha when it normally should be. And then you see, oh, it's possible to be free from dukkha. And no greed when there should be greed, no anger when there should be anger, no suffering when there should be suffering. There's a last question here. We all get lots of benefit from this monastery. Please explain how to share merits. Dedicate merit to the monks so they can improve their practice and improve their well-being. Well, that's a kind thought. Dedicating merit to the monks or to the laity, to anybody. Before you can share merit, you have to make merit first. That's the important thing. If you want to 
improve the practice of anybody, then you have to improve your own practice first. So if you want the monks here to practice well, well, you all have to practice well. If the monks want you to practice well, then we have to practice well. It goes like that, hand in hand. If the monks practice well and the lay people don't, maybe the monks will run away. <laughs> if the monks don't practice well, the lay people do, maybe the lay people will run away. So it's a self-regulating system. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know the story of Kosambi where the monks, in the time of the Buddha, they got into a huge argument over very little at all. Most arguments in life are like that. We argue over not much at all. This was an argument over the proper way to clean out the toilets. In those days you have a pot of water and a dipper and you clean the toilet after you've used it. And one monk said the dipper should be tipped upside down so there's no water left in it so that the next person can use it. It's dry. Another monk had left it turned upside down, or the right way up, sorry, and one monk criticized the other monk, said, you shouldn't do that. And he said, it's okay to do that. And then this quarrel spread to all the monks in the whole monastery, there's hundreds of them, all arguing over whether the dipper should be up or down. And not much different from what most people argue about in their households these days. <laughs> shouldn't laugh. Somebody once came here and they said they got divorced and it all began over complaining about not washing a coffee cup. <laughs> so maybe there's similarities between lay life and monk life. But anyway, all the monks in Kosambi ended up in this huge quarrel and they obviously were not enlightened yet because they all had their egos and there's one side saying, no, we're right, you're wrong. The other side said, no, we're right, you're wrong. And they're all standing off like that, no, not giving in. And so the Buddha, who was enlightened, said, I'm fed up with this. <laughs> I'm off because you're, you're not getting any wisdom here. You're just wasting your time arguing. So he went off on retreat for three months. So you get that famous image of the Buddha in the forest with the elephant and the monkey looking after him. He said, enough of human beings, they argue too much. So the elephant and the, the monkey made lots of merit in that rains retreat, giving fruit and honey and things to the Buddha. Meanwhile, back in Kosambi, all the monks were arguing. All the lay people, as you might expect, got fed up. They said, why do we want to give food to these monks? All they do is argue. So they um, stopped putting food in the monks' bowls. So the bowl, monks got very skinny. <laughs> and the monks got so skinny, they thought, uh-oh, we're not getting any support here. We'd better practice and behave better so they decided to mend their ways and they started to forgive each other and harmonize better and so everything was back to normal by the time the Buddha returned so behave, how we behave does affect each other how monks behave, how lay people behave and this is merit isn't it if you make merit you can share that you can dedicate that through your actions you support other practitioners, can be other lay people or the Sangha. Um, support them in whatever way you can. You know, physically, you can give food offerings or other requisites or 
donations or you can give your time, your energy or your skills to help a monastery or you can help each other. Dhamma practitioners can help each other. This is a kind of uh, sharing merit. Or you can just do it as a mental aspiration in your meditation. You mentally aspire to share the goodness of your own practice with the Sangha and the laity and all the deities as well, the devas, we can't even see them, but the devas also, we can share our merits with them. So that one is developing a very wholesome state of mind, the mind we call the mind of apamanya. So metta apamanya or karuna apamanya, where one has kindness or compassion in a boundless way, limitless way. It's the opposite when we're... Normally we tend to be kind to one person and ignore everyone else or hate everyone else. <laughs> this is the opposite. It's where one just gener- generates a sense of kindness and goodwill to all beings everywhere. Other uh, monks, lay people, devatas, animals, whatever. All beings in all realms everywhere. One is de- generating a very uh, pure aspiration for all beings to become enlightened to, to progress in their Dhamma practice. So if you think about it, if, if all people were to progress in their Dhamma practice, we'd all be better off. So if you ever do find you, know, you have anger or jealousy towards others, well, just turn it around and say, well, actually, the best thing is, is to promote um, harmony and their well-being through kindness, because if they become enlightened, even if they become enlightened before me, it will be good for everyone. The world needs more enlightened people, more practitioners. So apamanya, metta apamanya, you're making your mind very, very wide, expensive, where you just send out goodwill in all directions to all beings without limit, without any kind of uh, choosing between one or another. And one can do that. You can do that every day, every time you meditate. You can dedicate the uh, fruits of your practice to all others. So anyway, we've come to the end of our question and answer session. It's one o'clock. So uh, we uh, have time now for some walking meditation. For 45 minutes, yes. 45 minutes. If you'd like to do some walking outside, uh, if you want to carry on sitting, you're welcome. But if you'd like to walk outside, you can, and there'll be a bell at uh, 1.45 for the next sitting session. <laughs>